Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hello, Hagit. So wonderful to see you. How is the weather in Helsinki? Well, we are having a very rainy October afternoon. Um, So good afternoon and good morning, I guess. Good morning. It's about six in the morning in Kansas City. And it's supposed to be a nice sunny day. Um, We would love to have some rain. So perhaps we could do some exchange. If not via Zoom, then maybe in reality, a little bit of rain from Helsinki to Kansas City, and I will send you the sun willingly. So um, That sounds like a good deal. Welcome to whoever happens to uh, listen to us, to see us, and we are both very thrilled to produce this podcast at the invitation of Patrick Ryan and the Society for the History of children and youth. Um, Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. And just to tell you a little story how it happened that Marlene in Helsinki and I in Kansas City are together through this Zoom. So besides the marvels of technology, Patrick uh, in his invitation said that I should um, ask a colleague to interview me to make it as, uh, what would I say, formal and informal at the same time. And I was thinking, who would I like to collaborate with? And all of a sudden, literally out of the blue, the name came Mullin. So we met in Helsinki at a lovely conference, which generated a lovely book, another on on childhood. And Mullin will show it to you in a second. This is the book that... um, that came out of this wonderful conference in Helsinki. And I distinctly remember Marlene saying that she will be shortly heading to New York. And I said, oh, for a conference? She said, no, to dance. And it turned out out that in addition to being uh, um, a philosopher of ancient philosophy, Marlene is also a dancer. And this was for me the most irresistible combination on earth, dance and philosophy. And hence I asked Marlene to help me to create this podcast for you. Thank you, Malin. Thank you so much for your invitation. I am I'm truly thrilled to be a part of this. And as you know, I always enjoy conversation with you, Hagit, and I could be spending hours just talking to you. Um, so it's, it's wonderful to be a part of it. And uh, as for, for the conference, may I correct that it was Oslo? <laughs> oh yes <laughs> a nordic capital at any rate so anyway i also want to share a memory of like the conference was a thrill in itself and very fascinating but i also really remember all of my wonderful conversations with hagit and realizing that wow hagit is not only like an international leading expert and an endless source of insight into his history, but he also has this genuine love for arts and the creative field of life. And he also does creative writing, which 
she combines with academic research, which I find an absolutely fascinating and a very unique um, combination, which is also something I wish to come back to later in this conversation, if you don't mind. Thank you. And actually what you just said triggered another memory of this wonderful conference when I said to the organizers, um, could you organize a visit for all of us to the Museum of Childhood, which is very close to campus. And they looked at me and they said, what? And I said, you know, the wonderful Museum of Childhood in Oslo. And they said, we didn't know about it. And they did organize a wonderful tour. And it was one of this typical thing that New Yorkers never go to certain famous touristic spots, but every tourist is visiting those exact spots. So let us now really start the discussion because the invitation originally came uh, following the publication in 2018 of my book, which as you can see from here is um, Jewish Childhood in the Roman World. And this is the exact same year that Malin's book appeared as well. So it's absolutely a wonderful coincidence. And so, as I said, you get now two for the price of one, you get childhood, you get gender and you get sexuality. So we hope that this is going to be a winning combination. Wonderful. So. May I start uh, with a question, Hagit? Uh, first of all, congratulations on your wonderful book. I really enjoyed reading it. It was a very pleasant book to read and I learned a lot. But my first question is very general, um, which is that since um, Jewish childhood like it's a very big, important, a wide topic, and I would just um, like to hear a little bit more about your path that led you to take on such a colossal undertaking as it seems. Well, first notice that the title does not say children but childhood mm -hmm. because the fact remains that we have very little information about specific Jewish children throughout antiquity and when I talk about the Roman antiquity I'm primarily talking of the literature available roughly from about 200 CE to about five or six hundred CE so it's about a span of three four hundred years through which we have information about childhood, but not specifically about children. Now, why did I decide to um, take, uh, to do this major, major undertaking, which is really, if, if anybody cares to look at the list of my uh, <laughs> publications, they will see that it, they range from uh, barbarians to the Roman army and uh, from issues um, relating to um, imperial princesses to uh, the commanders of the Roman army. This happened because in recent years, fortunately, there has been growing interest, increasing interest in children and childhood in antiquity, which of course follows the general trend of um, studies devoting to children, childhood and youth throughout the ages. And um, there have been many conferences and to my great surprise, I found myself invited to several of them. And my first invitation, I think it was a conference in Rome and I thought, oh, there's no problem. I will just go to the library, pull out a dozen of articles, several books, and I will be wonderfully ready to give a paper. Well, it turns out that there was mighty little about 
the subject of Jewish children or childhood. So after five conferences, I thought, well, I might as well produce a book. And, and so strangely enough, um, that's exactly what happened. So after several papers, I thought, well, there's enough here for a book. And I decided to sit down and write a book. And that's the outcome. So it took a while and I'm pleased that um, it did come to the actual uh, publication. And now um, I know that you had a similar uh, journey. So tell us a little bit about your journey to gender and sexuality in, uh, in the stoic realm. Well, thank you, Hagit. Yeah, it is interesting indeed that there are certain similarities in our paths that led us writing our books. So it was basically um, a similar situation for me that I, um, well, I was interested in gender as a philosophical problem, particularly in Stoicism. But when I started my studies in this topic, I assumed that this topic would be fairly well covered already, as it seems in the same way as I would say childhood in the Jewish history, that you would think that it is such a kind of obvious topic in a way, like sure, we need to have information about this very wide, important set of questions. And it turns out there's hardly nothing on this topic. Like literally, um, there were only a couple of uh, articles, not very in-depth, not very extensive, uh, whereas there is a lot of excellent research on many related topics, such as the Roman Stoic views on the family or the social utopias in Stoicism. But as to the specific questions concerning the role and importance of gender and sexuality in Stoicism, um, this was a topic that was not covered in the literature, basically at all. Uh, so I also had to take this very major undertaking in starting to cover this ground. Uh, but I'm uh, like, it was a really exciting research to do uh, because it led me to read very carefully to not only philosophical original sources, but also ancient medicine, uh, some plays, uh, views on uh, the human body, views on beautification and cosmetics. Like I covered a very wide field of different types of sources, uh, also the ones that are more marginal within philosophical literature. And uh, one thing that I discovered was that even though my book is on gender, right, uh, I had to include wide sections on childhood because it became apparent to me that it, to understand gender within history of philosophy, we also have to look at the notions of childhood, that this was an indispensable part of my study because the notions of uh, like the origin of characteristics and are there differences between girls and boys, this was extremely important for me for getting a comprehensive view of the stoic views on gender and sexuality. And this is actually also a question I would like to pose back to you, because now in your case, uh, I see that it's kind of like the opposite, but st still you have to do the similar thing that your book is on childhood, but you have wide sections on gender. Like gender is a very important topic 
inside of your research, right? So it seemed that you had to include his views on gender and maybe I could directly go to that. Um, and since I think this is such a wide question, I could divide it in the traditional way into like asking about boys and girls separately. So uh, would you like to tell me something about like why, why you wanted to discuss gender and then take the sections on boys and girls and... I would love to, but yeah. perhaps just if I may say a word before you actually raised a very important question or point that maybe we ought to explain to our viewers and that's a question of sources. What yeah. actually do we have? What information do we have that comes from antiquity that enable us to, that enables us to actually do our work. And the wonderful thing about working in antiquity, at least for a historian like myself, is the fact that I look everywhere. In other words, I can look at inscriptions, primarily what we call in funerary inscriptions. Um, I look even at coins, in other words, doing um, a little bit of numismatics. I look at what you call straightforward historical um, sources, namely, somebody's uh, list of, um, say, uh, church councils or um, direct um, coverage of the history of the Roman Empire, say, from the 3rd century to the 4th century, which we have as well. Um, or I look, in this particular case, as well as to rabbinic writings. There's a huge corpus of rabbinic writings, mostly in Aramaic and also in Hebrew, which ordinarily are not used by historians of Roman antiquity, primarily because of the question of languages and the question of training. Um, but I have to confess that I derive great delight from reading rabbinic sources. And I think that not uh, infrequently, they actually display a wonderful sense of humor uh, and certainly a sense of irony. And that brings us to the question of gender because the rabbinic views, for example, on raising daughters are anything but, uh, how shall I say, delightful. And indeed, in a very well-known passage, they actually claim that raising daughters is like a continuing nightmare. Uh, when they are small, you want to make sure that they're properly up, they're properly, they get a proper education, upbringing. When they reach adolescence, you worry lest somebody seduces them. When they reach the age of marriage, you worry lest you will not find a husband from them. When they finally are married, you worry lest they won't produce sons. And when they get old, you worry in case they become sorceresses or witches. So this, if you take it literally, it's, uh, I would say, a little bit problematic, but let's take it with a sense of humor. So clearly in any study of childhood there is room for understanding the, um, how the concepts, how the categories of gender operate um, within the framework of uh, Jewishness. And um, there's certainly a very different attitude, very different approach to essentially how to bring up boys and how to bring up girls. But quite often they also intersect those, those categories. And they intersect when the rabbis question, for example, the validity of oaths. Um, how valid would be an oath taken by a girl or by a boy? And at what age should such oaths be taken at face value? 
Um, so there is certainly understanding of um, different um, gender keys, if you want, and uh, most certainly different treatment of um, uh, muscul the masculine and the feminine, if, if you want, at, uh, at every age. And there is, of course, no escape that in rabbinic thought, just as in general ancient thought, um, the, those, the feminine and the masculine are dramatically and irretrievably different. There are exceptions, and the main exception is, of course, the Stoic, um, a little bit of the Stoic, the Roman Stoic that um, Malin, you wrote about, and that the uh, sometimes little flashes of light, um, even in, you, see, you can certainly see them on inscriptions, on funerary inscriptions, where you can read the heartbreaking commemoration of a child, of a girl or a boy, and you can actually really realize that for parents, it did not make such a difference when they lost a child, whether it's a boy or a girl. So, so I think that that certainly um, is, is a, an important aspect of the research to, to bear in mind the, the gender um, and the um, different attitudes to the feminine and the masculine. So may I follow up on that? Because I think this is really fascinating. So since you mentioned that there was such a difference most of the time when uh, discussing the upbringing and grooming of boys and girls. So um, why was this difference actually made? Was it like the purpose of education or was it an underlying view that boys and girls just are so different? Like that there's an inborn difference that makes it impossible to groom them in the same way? Or why, why was this difference made? Are the sources explicit on this? Well, I think part of it is, of course, the overall attitude to masculinity in antiquity that um, already drew distinctions, whether it's the, the Greek mind, the Roman mind, the Jewish mind, or just about in every culture of antiquity that we know, there are obviously distinct um, differences in the approach to how to bring up boys and how to bring up girls. Um, it's certainly the same thing in, in ancient Judaism, um, in which indeed the rabbis outlined very clearly the obligations that a father has towards his son. And if you think about the kind of the ironic um, opinion that I just uh, kind of quoted you about girls, it's the same attitude. In other words, how to bring up girls. You essentially bring up your daughter in order to make sure that she's married off to an appropriate uh, a person and produces sons. Uh, with how to bring up boys, it's quite different because then you have the obligation to teach them the Torah, which is absolutely crucial. In other words, to initiate them into what it means to be a Jew. Um, and then um, you, besides that, um, you have, of course, also the obligations, which is interesting, the obligation to teach them uh, a craft, in other words, something that would enable them to make a living. That's in addition, of course, to teaching them Torah. Uh, you do have to make sure that they get, that they get married, that they produce children. And, and, and in one of the famous passages, it's also added that you also have to teach them how to swim, uh, which I find it's absolutely wonderful juxtaposing you know, the Torah a profession, marriage, and teaching them how to swim. And that, of course, the implication here, the children could die untimely simply by drowning. 
And, and when you have, you know, communities that also live pretty close to the coast, that is a really real, that's a real danger. Um, so um, that's one of the little passages when there is little extra PS and don't forget to teach them swimming, which I think is absolutely lovely. Yes. Mm. An important life lesson for sure. Um, since the list you just quoted kind of, rather quickly goes from like being a child to having children of your own exactly. uh, or you know being a son and then having sons so when does the childhood actually end like yes that's a very that's a very difficult question because also throughout antiquity this was a big not just philosophical but also a question a real question regarding puberty in other words when the when the human body is is essentially ready for the function of uh, reproduction and and uh, so we have uh, you know quite quite a bit of speculation about that from the so-called seven ages of men which is beautifully reproduced in Shakespeare's uh, famous world famous words and also a reflection in rabbinic writings in other words when uh, when does the body reach the stage of puberty or if you want of adulthood and that really can vary. Uh, I would say that somewhere in late antiquity, somewhere say around the year 400, the understanding was that for girls, it's not before the age of 12, for boys, it's roughly 14, but that really there is no strict categories that could shift at any point and in any culture and obviously uh, in specific cases as well. Uh, so that's one of the questions that truly has, has never quite been settled. So, and you even find laws addressing that, which means that it was pretty much a burning question throughout the ages. Um, because once you're an adult, there are laws that relate to your behavior. And, um, and as a child, uh, clearly not all these laws apply to you because it obviously doesn't, you have no understanding of them. And so the other aspect of reaching adulthood also meant that you are now responsible by law to a host of things that you have to abide by. And that was another aspect of reaching puberty, not just that the body is ready to reproduce and procreate, but there are, of course, you are now a citizen in the sense that you have a list of responsibilities of which you may or may not be aware, but anyway, they exist. And certain expectations of, of behavior. So it's, and, but I just wanted to raise a little, another question. If we're talking about bringing up or the educational or the, edu, and the educability of girls and boys, I know that you raised this important issue in your wonderful book, which I just want to add for the benefit of our listeners or viewers, that, is, that I always had what um, Lord Wimsey would say, a deaf ear to philosophy. And I think for the first time I, in my life, I truly enjoyed reading a book about philosophy, and that's Mullins' book. And I remember my first reaction was, how wonderfully accessible is this analysis? It was absolutely a pleasure to read, because one of the preliminaries, when we talked about doing this podcast, Mullins suggested that I do read uh, her book, so I will become familiar with her work. And it was truly uh, a pleasure primarily because I said I could absolutely follow every single argument and make sense of all of them. So my deaf ear to philosophy opened a little bit and thank you for that, for that uh, Malin. So I just wanted, if you don't mind, raising this really important and very intriguing 
aspect of Stoicism, which is the extraordinary point relating to the educability of girls and boys. Well, first of all, thank you so much for your kind words on my book. I'm very humbled. Wow, thank you. Uh, even though I would uh, totally disagree with the deaf air part. But anyway, uh, leaving that to another conversation. Thank you, Hagit. Um, that was one of the uh, like really fascinating parts in my research that I really, really enjoyed working on. I mean, writing, well, writing that part on educability and childhood, because in the Stoic, uh, corpus or the remaining original Stoic texts, there are a couple of very, very interesting letters from a Roman Stoic philosopher named Musonius Rufus, in which he addresses the question of, um, well, females practicing philosophy and girls being educated. And in these letters, basically addressing Roman fathers, he is making the point that uh, or he's urging the fathers to educate not only their boys, but also their girls. And not only including girls in education, but actually providing them with the same, exactly the same education as the boys. Now, this has been a really radical position in its own time. Musonius clearly was aware of this, so he uh, defends his position in many different ways. So it's like embarking on some kind of common sense arguments, for example, pointing out that if the goal of philosophy is happiness and we want happiness to the entire humankind, now women comprise very nearly half of the humankind. So obviously for us to reach the goal of providing happiness for the whole, we have to care about the happiness of the half. So like a very common sense argument of, so we have to include women into the search of happiness. Well, what is search of happiness? The Stoics understand happiness as a life of wisdom, becoming a sage and living a life of virtue. So like expressing all of the virtues in your characteristics, uh, which is not only a theoretical position, but really like virtue is reflected in your everyday attitudes, the ways you react to the things you encounter in the world, the ways you treat other people. Um, so he suggests that women not only should be able to search for the same happiness as men, but he also claims that they, in fact, have the same capacities to do so. Now, th this is already a separate point, which is also radical. And he doesn't really explain how we are supposed to understand this second point, that women actually have the same capacities to receive happiness or that girls have the same possibilities to be educated as boys. But when I looked through the Stoic existing sources on their views of the soul and the development of children, I realized that uh, virtually all original sources in ancient Stoicism uh, emphasize the common ground in children that they discuss children, not girls or boys separately. And even if they use the word boy or man rather than girl and woman, it's rather a way of following the tra traditional way of expression of using like man for human being. Um, but actually it became obvious to me that these terms are more relevant in the temporal 
or temporal aspect of it, meaning that a boy develops into a man mm-hmm. and it relates to the AIDS more so than the gender, because uh, basically the stoic view doesn't even really allow us to see girls and boys as two different groups of people because they so much emphasize the common ground in all humans of having those seeds of rationality that are inborn in us and developing all through our childhood towards us uh, being able to use our reason and our rational capacities more and more fully. And they even claim that children in a certain way perceive the world correctly, but the surrounding culture uh, and social environment kind of corrupts these seeds, seeds of virtue, seeds of mm-hmm. wisdom. Um, and looking into how gender fits this picture, it became clear to me that the Stoics, at least for, uh, for the most part, considered that many aspects of what, what we consider gender to be is a product of our cultural and social environment. So this corrupting culture that leads us astray from these seeds of virtue and, uh, and wisdom uh, is actually, this culture is also producing parts of what we observe as gender. Musonius says this explicitly because in his letter he says that, uh, yes, women, have the same possibilities for courage as men. We see this in female animals, how they fight for their offspring. If we seem to observe women in our culture to be more timid or express less courage, or Andrea, which already on the level of terminology, seems to restrict courage to men because Andrea means a man. So he says, that this is due to lack of practice, not due to the fact that courage would not be an innate quality. And I think this is such a remarkable point for an ancient philosopher to make, that it is practice and habituation and education that at least partly produces these differences. Absolutely. And to think that this extraordinary modernity was already proclaimed 2,000 years ago and that it has taken us, and by mean us, by mean the whole globality, the whole world, nearly 2,000 years to reach the same conclusion that philosophers like Mosonius Rufus already reached 2,000 years ago. All I can say is the mind boggles. However, this said, I have to say for the sake of the dear old rabbis of antiquity, is that it did occasionally occur to them that the mind of the female is not all that different from that of men, because we have two little discussions, two vignettes, if you want, one of them asking, should we teach our daughters the Torah? So somebody actually did raise the question, since it is obligatory for fathers to teach the sons the Torah, number one, is it obligatory that the mother should do so? And number two, should we teach the daughters the Torah as well? You can imagine that the answer on the whole was negative, but the fact that the question was raised is interesting in itself. And then the other question raised as well in, in, by the rabbis in antiquity was, should we teach our girls Greek? 
Now, this is an interesting question because it was one of the famous rabbis who lived in Caesarea, which was the great capital of the province, the Roman province of Palestine. Um, he actually said, yeah, we should teach the daughters Greek. And remember that Greek was not the language universally spoken by Jews in Palestine. So most of them would have spoken Aramaic and probably would have understood some Hebrew. The rabbis most certainly uh, knew Hebrew quite well. So, but Greek was the language of culture. Greek was the language of Hellenism. And, and it was also rather a contested concept in ancient Judaism. So the question that the fact that it was raised is already very interesting. And the answer to that not only was negative, but the answer to that was what's the point? Um, and the rabbi who lived in Caesarea basically was very close to uh, government um, circles. So he may have an interest to interact. Um, and the understanding was, yes, boys may derive, some boys, those of the upper classes, may derive benefit from learning Greek so that they could communicate with the likes, those members of the upper class. Uh, but girls, now probably not a good idea to teach them Greek. So the question of should we teach our girls the Torah and should we teach them Greek? Those questions were raised. The answer was not unexpected and not unpredictable. But perhaps we could now move to a little bit of visuals because we also prepared uh, visuals for you. Um, I'm using a good number of visuals in, uh, in the book. This, is, this was one of the pleasures to actually use them and in fact, trying to decipher the meaning and the message. So if we could um, use the first visual, Malin. Mm -hmm. So which one do you want? Well, we wanted I, uh, the, the one which begins with the cover, the, uh, the, the tombstone of Benjamin. Okay, here we go. I'm sorry. Let's get Benjamin here. Okay. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Okay. So uh, this is um, a tombstone, which is very, very interesting because as according to some scholars, it is the only time that you can actually look directly at the Jewish family. In other words, if anybody asked you, what did a Jew look like in antiquity? We cannot answer the question unless we look at this one. And even when we look at this one, in which I can assure you that this family group looks like any family group on any Roman tombstone you, that you may ever see, even then, it is not entirely clear that they are really the Jewish family that is uh, buried here. But I'd like to draw your attention to, um, to several aspects of this very interesting tombstone. It comes from what is now Hungary, from Pannonia, uh, not far from the Danube. And um, the, you're clearly looking at a man, a female, and a child. And in between the heads of the, of the mother and the father, you can actually see um, an etched candelabra, which, is, which stands for the famous menorah that was the uh, very widespread Jewish symbol in antiquity. And there are, in fact, two more of these smaller. One of them is, on, is inscribed on the chest of the little boy. Now, the interesting thing is that we have two inscriptions, not only one, on this tombstone. One of them um, was put up by two sisters for the family. And the other one numbers uh, a mother, father, 
one boy and possibly another child. So the two inscriptions, in fact, none, neither one nor the other correspond exactly to this image. So are we actually looking at the Jewish family or not? In the inscription that reflects the Jewish family, the child is called Benjamin, which by all intents and purposes does, uh, it does sound like a, a Jewish name in antiquity and of course nowadays as well. Um, so the question opening my book was, is this really Benjamin? And all I wanted to do was to show the problem, the problems, the problematics of identifying Jews, especially Jewish children in antiquity. Because uh, if this is Benjamin, I'm of course delighted, but am I 100% sure? No, I cannot tell you whether this is Benjamin or whether this is a child belonging to the first family that used this tombstone. So this tombstone was reused in antiquity, which is not unusual. We have many reused tombstones. The material was expensive. Uh, carving them was expensive. Um, putting the inscription was expensive. So it made sense to reuse already existing. But the question is whether the additions, such as the menorah or the candelabra, indicate that the original occupiers were also Jewish or not, we don't know. So I like that partic this particular um, tombstones because one, it reminds us that child mortality was everywhere. Very, the by statistics suggest that um, a huge number of children, no less than probably about one fifth up to a third would have died before they reached the age of five sometimes the age of 10. So child mortality was everywhere among all cultures. So that's one reminder of these uh, tombstones. And the other one was essentially that the basic unit of society then as now was and is the family. And you can see it very clearly here. And also you can notice the beautiful gesture of the mother putting her right arm over the shoulder of the child. Um, so that's a very lovely reminder of the faction that um, uh, families produce and are reproduced on these mute tombstones um, marking death um, and clearly indicating um, the uh, everlasting memory of the family that uh, want to commemorate their dead. Um, and then the third one was, of course, the question of Jewishness, whether, the, whether this was um, a Jewish family or not. So that's the reason why I wanted to use this on the um, cover of the book. And also because um, in addition, it's really very well preserved. I mean, the, the components are, are very clear. Even if you cannot see every detail, you can still have a pretty good idea of the, uh, the father's beard, the mother hairstyle. Um, the child, by the way, is holding a little bird. And um, that's another indication, not so much of a hobby, but of the um, essence of eternity. So it's the, the memory of this family uh, lives on. And indeed, <laughs> we're looking at it. The date is probably about 300 CE. So it's about 1,700 years old. Malin, would you like wow. to give your impressions of? Wow, I think it's, it's amazing. I, I just wanted to ask you about, about the same thing. What, what is the child holding? I think it's fascinating that you can see it's a bird. Yes. And you know, we have Roman um, funerary monuments that actually show a little bird under the, under the bed of a child. So 
that particular scene shows a child on her bed. So obviously, in the sense, both her life and probably the last minutes of her death. And under that, there is a little doggy, which we assume was her pet. And, mm. and so, of course, as a dog lover, this is, this is the kind of uh, details that I noticed. Oh, my goodness, there's a doggy there. Um, and it may have been her, her pet doggy. Um, so, you know, children were children, even in antiquity, they may have had the, the pet animals and, um, or then the, the idea that the adults had was that the life beyond death, especially of a child, could be symbolized in a bird that takes off and that's it, it's over, or, or it takes off and goes to heaven. So that could be uh, another idea of understanding and perhaps understanding the mourning, the, the sadness uh, that um, it, a death of a child, the untimely death um, brings to the family, but also the hopes of um, going to heaven. The hopes that, that, that you know, the child eventually uh, go to heaven, which of course is very much the, one of the foundations of, of, religion, uh, of religions that, you, that you, want to th you want to really believe that those who die untimely don't, in a sense, die in vain, that they do have their very special place in, in the life to come or in afterlife. Um, so that's, that's my family of Benjamin. That's my Benjamin, <laughs> the only child, yeah. So uh, talking about teaching girls and boys, um, can I next share one image about learning? and school, and I would love to hear you tell me a little bit more about that image, Agit, if possible. So. It's always lovely to use visuals, especially those coming from antiquity. They give yeah. us a sense of what things were like, or at least how the artist env envisioned what school setting could be like, what home setting could be like, obviously very idealistic. Um, so yes, I would love to uh, share those. All right, here we go. Um, so this is a pretty uh, famous uh, school scene. In other words, on the, uh, you can see a child in this uh, chair um, holding a scroll and more or less with this expression of, oh my God, do I remember what it is? And then the teacher uh, at the center, um, some sort of teaching assistant. And then this is probably a slave who took the child to school. So this is not necessarily a Jewish uh, scene. In fact, it does not come from a Jewish monument, but it is the kind of uh, school scene that probably reflects the actual schooling, the daily schooling of, of children of well-to-do families, those children whom the slaves took in the morning to uh, the school. Uh, the teacher uh, uh, was doing uh, his best to uh, educate them. And then at the end of the day, which would have been a rather long day, the slave would take them back home. Um, incidentally, we also have a series of mosaics that probably came from what is now Syria that show not only the gentle side of teaching, in other words, the teacher doing his best to teach the child uh, how to read and to carry on with reading, and you can see the scroll, but we also have uh, on the mosaic at least since showing the teacher spanking the child. So school may not have been an unadulterated joy, uh, 
on, at least on some days, but mostly you can see this rather benign, uh, sweet image of the child and the teacher um, doing what I have to do, which is the child trying to learn, the teacher trying to teach. This is as far as boys are concerned. And then obviously you will not find girls in the same settings. You're likely to find girls in the setting that we are going to show you next, which is basically an idealized home. But um, one more question. Okay, is it possible to know from this image like what kind of class this child belongs to? Would he be more like upper class or could he be just anyone? So that's a very good question because it connects with the question of, the, of literacy. To what extent uh, was literacy widespread or limited? And this in itself con connects with the question, what do we mean by literacy? So in other words, did most people know essentially how to decipher a sign saying, here is a butcher, um, uh, here is a, a stand for uh, fruit and vegetables or something like this? Uh, probably the answer is yes. Would most people be able to read the laws which were posted in public places because in antiquity, for example, when the emperor issued a law, a copy of it would have been actually positioned in the public place to be read. But could, could everybody read it? Probably not. <laughs> Whoever did read it, the question is, could they even understand it? So literacy, the ba basic literacy may have been fairly widespread, but by basic literacy, we don't really go beyond the alphabet. The literacy that this child acquired, in other words, the um, good command of reading and writing, uh, would probably be more uh, the property of the upper class where uh, to the very end of antiquity what we call rhetoric remained very important in other words the ability to communicate at a high level with people of your class and also to address people in public so that particular aspect of education which we call rhetoric was and remained important throughout antiquity and it's pretty much a hallmark of the upper class. And here it's probably a sin of upper class, maybe upper middle class, but certainly not something that every child of every poor family or every family in antiquity shared. So it would be a pretty much of an exclusive uh, vision of how a, a boy uh, receives education during the years that the boy attends class. Sorry. Uh, should we now go to the next image? In the next image, we'd like to know how girls learned what they did learn. And when we see the image, which is all very beautiful and comes from Pompeii, and as soon as we figure out the marvels of technology, of 21st century technology, to bring us uh, a first century image, there you go. Uh, so this is uh, one of the famous uh, scenes from Pompeii. So it's a, it's a beautiful wall painting uh, from uh, Pompeii, the, the, the famous city that essentially was, um, how shall I say, uh, was, was burned under layers of lava uh, in the year 79 CE. So um, it, it's a marvel of uh, preservation. And here we see uh, a mother, uh, clearly a daughter, and another figure, uh, perhaps even a teacher. And you can actually see how a girl was taught 
to read, which in itself is extremely unusual because such scenes are of, of girls learning how to read would have been very unusual, uh, both in reality of antiquity and certainly on the walls of the well-to-do families in, in ancient Pompeii. Um, notice, by the way, the figure on, on the left, which is the mother, very well clad, very well dressed, which is again part, if you want, of the dress code of the upper class. Uh, and the little girl is naked, which is entirely possible, but she must also be extremely young. So the nakedness um, uh, really indicates probably two aspects of this picture. One, that she is very, very, very young. And two, that this is a very idealistic image of, if you want, the uh, entry of girls into uh, education. Um, whether such sins were actually common in reality is a very big question. The chances are that most girls were actually not taught how to read. And if they were, it would have been the most basic of uh, literacy. Um, how do we know it? Just to give an example, we have um, indications that the documents would have been read aloud for women when they had, for example, to sign a document, that the most that they could do was sign it or even and trust somebody else to sign it. So even women of well-to-do families, not necessarily super rich, but pretty well-to-do, may not have been um, uh, in a position to acquire literacy, not because they couldn't afford it, but because this was simply the attitude to um, the education of females, that they didn't need it. There would be a male somewhere along to explain. Uh, the interesting aspect of it all is that it was still assumed that the women could understand um, legal issues and legal documents relating to them, which is very important. So there was no doubting of the intelligence of women, but there was doubting of the value of educating them, which of course are the two issues that Marlin's philosophers uh, discuss um, as, as well. Um, so here is an, an image that really raises more questions about the education, but not the educability of girls. Marlene? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's an important point to raise. And it also makes me think of like how uh, fascinating it is that both you and I, we go centuries and millennia back in time to our sources and we read these ancient texts that deal with topics that somehow are still the same topics we read on the news today, right? Who are included in or excluded from education on what basis uh, do we really consider girls and boys or men and women as educable in the very same sense and to the same extent and to the same goals or what are the differences? And, uh, and since this is a topic that is also like on, on the news, all the time, I think it's somehow extremely relevant that we as historians or philosophers also go back in time to look at the roots of, of the views that we have today, because obviously whatever prejudices there are today, they didn't just come out from nowhere, but all of our views have these long and twisty, tangled roots in history. And it's really interesting to go back to those roots and also find these alternative pictures like this one or what I said about the Musonis and so that it has not always been the case that uh, even 
even back in our history or back in antiquity that uh, it would have not occurred anyone that also girls could be educated. Exactly. And that brings us to um, the next image, because the question that I asked myself is about visuals. Since we know that visuals pretty much dominate now the lives of children, um, and that children at, at really at a tiny age tend to be absolutely fascinated by visuals, and Malin can give us firsthand testimony of that. Um, Mike, I, I, it was absolutely clear to me that it could not have been that children were only initiated into writing or into reading, but that the visuals must have been an important part. And I also suspect music. We don't have an, an, any testimony that I know of, of the role of music in education, which I think must have been crucial, the music and dance. In other words, moving your body and, and listening and moving your voice in, in, in a manner different from uh, uh, from rhetoric, but um, there's no question that visuals were used as well. And I was simply looking at visuals in the synagogue. In other words, we actually have a very significant number of synagogues from antiquity all throughout the Mediterranean, the Roman Mediterranean, and virtually each one of them has mosaics. And some of them are absolutely magnificent. Now, remember that most people would remind you that the second commandment says no graven images. Notwithstanding the second commandment, we do have images in synagogues. And I cannot um, escape the reflection that these were part and parcel of, in, of initiating children into what it meant to be Jewish. In other words, the cultural initiation through images. So we have a couple of examples. The most famous example comes from the synagogue of Dura Europus, which is on what is now the border between Syria and Iraq. And it has magnificent wall paintings, um, which by the way, if you get to Damascus, you can actually see in the Damascus Museum, but there are countless um, reproductions of these uh, wall mosaics. And we also have of the wall paintings, I beg your pardon, and we also have mosaics on the floor. And we have one example of a very popular biblical scene, which we will show you in a second. And we will not ask you to identify that, but let's have a look at it. Uh, one moment. That's okay. Okay, so here we go with the... Yes, and if we, could move the, if we could move the image a little bit more to, to the... Uh, that's it, all right. So this a little bit more because that's the part that I actually want to show. You want uh, me to zoom in a little? Uh, yeah, if we could move it a little bit more. I, there you go, a little bit more. Unfortunately, I can't. Okay, so we'll have to use our, our imagination, which is probably what most children had to do in antiquity. So this is this comes from a floor of a mosaic in a synagogue in what we call Beit Alpha, which is in the Valley of Jezreel in Israel. And uh, not to keep you in suspense, it is, of course, the Akedah or the sacrifice of Isaac. And you can actually see just about every detail. So any child, who would have studied this particular chapter of Genesis, which is a very famous chapter on which God calls his, God calls on Abraham to sacrifice his child Isaac. 
as a proof of his faith and trust in God includes um, the, 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 those slaves who helped Abraham to set the scene, the, um, the ram that was eventually uh, sacrificed instead of the child, the famous hand of God, which in fact here appears twice, which stopped Abraham just on time. And the most interesting thing is, of course, the figure of Abraham holding a knife that would have been used to sacrifice his son. And this figure, which is holding in his left hand, is actually um, Isaac, which really looks like a miniature adult, which is interesting because the rabbis did discuss how old would Isaac would have been when he was nearly sacrificed by his father to prove the faith in Yahweh. And on most of the mosaics, he appears as a baby, but on some of them, he appears as an adult because in fact, the rabbis at one point wondered whether Isaac was an adult. In other words, whether he actually fully understood, fully grasped the meaning of this sacrifice. Um, now, this is a wonderful illustration of what every child would have learned in the Torah in, already in the book of Genesis. And I have no doubt that such mosaics, besides embellishing synagogues, also acted as agents of um, educability and education and uh, brought to life the biblical sins that the children would hear about and learn about. And by reading, I don't mean that I actually had a copy of the scroll. What I mean is that most teaching would have done, been done orally and um, in a way that the children would have, been, would have been endowed with very developed memory and would have actually remembered the sin. So when they came to the synagogue, one child would say, oh, look, this is Abraham, or this is the Isaac, or this is the Rem. Now, to make things absolutely clear, each person or each component of the picture was actually would actually mark with an inscription. So this one, for example, says Isaac in Hebrew, which is Yitzhak. This one says Abraham, Avraham, which is in Hebrew. This one actually says, and here is the Rem, literally, and here is the Rem, literally, exactly as it says in Genesis. Um, so this is really a lovely illustration of how the Bible would have been reinforced, if you want, through uh, visuals. Mm -hmm. And we find this particular scene extremely popular, which makes me wonder about the concept of childhood in general, since this is really uh, could have been uh, a blood curdling sin had God did not stop Abraham in time. And, and, and so um, the idea that you could sacrifice your only, your, not your only, but your child as a proof of your um, faith um, is uh, for me uh, a bit of a problematic uh, concept. But um, here it is. And I said, I think that it was really a, a very nice example of the um, pedagogical function of um, synagogue pictures. Mm, absolutely, this is a very strong and fascinating image indeed. Um, may I follow up with a question, though, and going back to also what you said earlier of like how little we actually know about children, right? That we know about childhood, but not so much so about children. Um, and this is something I find really fascinating and very, very pleasant indeed reading your book is that you have created these narratives uh, giving children their own voice uh, and using this creative writing as a part of your 
academic research, which I think is very unique and it's a beautiful style. And it, for me as a reader, brought so much um, to, to your work. So um, could I ask you to tell me a little bit more uh, what, well, how you came up with writing these narratives on the one hand and, and, and to why you thought it was important uh, as a part of your research. And if I may, I could share a couple of images that I think are related to this question. Thank you. Thank you very I much. Hope, uh, my technology is getting better here. I am so sorry, <laughs> Hattie, that this is okay. not going as smoothly as I wish. It's all right. Well, here we you are. So Look, the picture yeah. here. Thank you so much for the question, because I have been thinking when I thought about the methodology and I thought about it for a long time, yes, I could use the text to build a theory. For example, indeed, um, the ages of childhood, the stages of childhood, uh, bringing up boys, uh, bringing up girls, um, legal aspects, uh, and so forth. That was not a big issue because I used the sources, as we all do, and um, and I could go ahead. I was also interested in the visual aspect of uh, visual aspects of um, learning, and that's where I used the synagogue pictures. But I really, really was bothered by the lack of narratives told by children themselves. Um, and I read the sources and I thought which sources I can use to recreate child, children, not, so, not only childhood, but children. And that, of course, took me invariably, as, as, as those who read these documents know, that took me to the Judean desert, which you are looking at. This is the famous place where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in those caves, where they had been preserved for nearly 2,000 years. But what most people may not realize is those were also caves of refuge. This is where people ran in times of emergency. This is where they thought that they could find safety for a while and then go back home. The documents that we have, which relate to the early second century, the time of the revolt against the Romans, the revolt led by somebody called Bar Kokhba, the documents we have indicate very clearly that the last moments of the group that found refuge in these caves because they never returned. We found skeletons that probably re probably can relate to the group that also left us documents. So we have an unbelievably important source of documents that were found tied together. And these documents were kept by a woman called Babata. So just imagine that amidst all the other all the other possessions that people took with them, and believe it or not, we actually have wonderful plates, just in case you want to have a banquet in the cave. We have wonderful plates, we have jewelry, we have cosmetics. So just think, what would you take if somebody told you, you must run away? And unfortunately, that's, it happens nowadays. So the question is, what would you take with you? And you find this woman, besides cosmetics, she also took a bunch of documents, documents that showed that, that documented her properties, document, documents that related to her divorce, document related, relating to her remarriage, and documents relating to the guardianship of her only boy, whose name was, believe it or not, or not Jesus. In other words, Yeshua in Hebrew, Joshua or Jesus, son of Babata. 
And so those documents, in a sense, inflamed my imagination. And I thought, instead of telling the story of Babata that every scholar has told again and again and again and again, on the basis of analyzing the same documents again and again and again, why not tell the story of little Jesus, son of Babata? And that's how I thought, okay, I'm going to tell the story of this particular child. We actually have his name. We actually have documents, legal documents, even documenting his name and documenting the fact the, the battle of guardianship, which should be familiar to anybody who goes through a, who goes through a divorce, that the battle of guardianship of a child, of a minor child. And then I thought, okay, let's look around at other possibilities of recreating childhood. And that's how I recreated three children of antiquity, of course, based on uh, appropriate documents. Um, but I really wanted the readers to have a sense of what it was like to be a child. And unfortunately in Jewish history, there are many moments of urgency, emergency, and dangers of life and death. And this, and, and in, there's, there's sometimes happy end, but very often there is not so happy end. And so um, this is why the, the story of Jesus son of Babata actually begins with his last moments. Um, because um, there is a very good chance that he actually died in the cave and he may have been about 12 or 13 years old. Um, so on the basis of the documents and of course other sources, I told the story of uh, Jesus, son of Babata, who spent his last months in this little tiny, tiny hole that you see here, which actually is not that small. It is very clever in the sense that the Romans who would stand up here because after the failure of Bar Kokhba, the Romans hunted all refugees. So they would stand here. And unless they stood on the other side of the Judean mountains, they would not see this particular cave. But of course, sooner or later, they did spot those caves. So we have um, other photographs to give you a sense of that as very stark um, and very contradictory landscape that on the one hand offered refuge and on the other hand, also was in a sense a trap. So as, as soon as we see the other one, which is in a sense, um, and, and there you go, and you can have a sense, you see if the Romans would stand, if your enemy would stand here, they have a pretty good chance of seeing that something is not quite the same as everywhere. So they would realize that there is an opening, not necessarily like this one, which would be basically just kind of a, a little opening, but more uh, other openings that would really lead to a pretty deep cave. And I think we have another close-up picture that will show you that, um, a, a close-up of, of that particular uh, opening to a very deep cave. Yeah, it's coming. It's not yet coming. <laughs> there you go. So here is, for example, again, it would have been virtually impossible to see it if you were standing even on top of it. it would have been virtually impossible to see it. But if you were standing on the other side, as the Romans eventually did, because they surrounded the entire area, they could see that this, this would be a potential very deep cave. And indeed, the cave where the documents were found is a pretty several hundred meters um, into those, uh, those um, rocky hills. 
Um, so the story of Jesus, son of Babata, probably was not an unusual story uh, because in, in Jewish history, you have the great revolt in the first century. You have a, a, another revolt, this all in Palestine in the second century. In Palestine, you also, in, the, in the second century, you also have what you call the revolt of the diaspora, which, would, which took place in North Africa, in, in Egypt and Cyrenaica. And, you, and, and we hardly ever ask ourselves, what was the fate of children? Because that, it's not documented. And I wanted to ask to show that it was possible to have a very, very happy childhood, very normal childhood, as this child had, but to end up in a cave. So this child actually grew up in south of the Dead Sea in a place called Zoar or Zoora. And then, because his mother, how shall I say, got hitched by a guy from Engedi, which is on the west coast of the Dead Sea, they moved to Engedi, where basically he continued just to, to, to have a nice childhood. And then all of a sudden, they actually had to move to a cave. And, um, and that essentially uh, was the, the, last, the last place that we know anything about them. Um, and the rest we can reconstruct from the documents that were left in that cave. Um, so this is not a necessarily an, a, um, a common ending of childhood, that um, a child dies at the age of about 12 or 13 um, in a cave. Um, and that most of the um, surviving inscriptions relating to Jewish children suggest that they died as many other children died. Of, uh, if they died in infancy, it would have been diseases. It would have been um, other uh, causes that would afflict many children around the Mediterranean. But the way in which Jesus son of Babata died, uh, obviously was, was unusual. In other words, as a refugee in a cave with his mother, uh, with his stepfather, with um, probably um, other relatives, um, who essentially tried to escape the revenge of the Romans once the revolt was crushed. Uh, the two other children I described, I obviously had to, to describe girls as well because it's so unusual to find information about girls. And so my girls, one of them comes from Egypt because we have a wonderful document. We have a marriage contract coming from Egypt in the early fifth uh, century. And then, uh, and, and, and my other girl comes from the island of Crete, because we have an inscription there um, commemorating uh, a woman who was a, um, uh, very active in the local synagogue. So obviously it's not so much directly related to these children. So I reconstructed the family life and the lives of these children on the basic documents that did not necessarily relate directly to them. But I wanted to give sense to create a sense of what it was like to be an actual Jewish girl or Jewish boy in antiquity, beyond the dry documents that describe them. Marlene, any... Um... So how was the process of writing those narratives though? Can you tell me a little bit just of your work? Well, that's because I come, you know, I have a craving to write fiction, mm. <laughs> which I shouldn't probably mention because then uh, people, uh, colleagues may question the validity of my sources. Yes, I love delving into the ancient sources, but I also enjoy fiction. So my ideal would be to combine a very serious research and analysis of the ancient sources, but infusing them with life by creating uh, the characters that are not necessarily directly created by the sources. And also because I think you and I talked about it, but we really, really want to share our passion 
for antiquity with anybody who cares to listen or to look at us or to ask us questions. Um, we both of us think that it's just does not make a lot of sense to keep it in academic circles, but we really, really, really are extremely eager to share our love and passion and work uh, with anybody, just about anybody who cares to, to listen, to, to read, to look, and we are delighted because of this opportunity to uh, really um, say hi to everybody and hopefully um, just um, tell you a little bit of what we really care about. Yeah, absolutely. I, I of course, so much agree. And I would also like to mention that I think both of us also love to like not see arts and, and academia as two separate isolated fields, but as a continuum of of same human spirit. So all of the combinations between the creative fields, like in my case, it might have been the dance or arts education that I have the privilege to work with or, or creative writing in your case. So whatever combinations we can find between these fields, we, we love to use, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and also not necessarily using the academic language that we are trained to use. Mm. And I always say that, you know, we will have uh, six other sweating graduate students who will try to understand what we, what we are saying. But uh, we think that the, the language of fiction or what I call fictionalized um, history um, is much more accessible. And that's one of the reasons why I enjoy so much reading your book, because I said it was not only eminently accessible, but it was absolutely fascinating. And it really opened a window for me to uh, to understand that you and I are not the first people to think about uh, the, the, not only education, which everybody had thought about, but educability of boys and girls, which are questions that we never stop discussing. Um, and and um, and already two thousand years ago, they were actually raised um, by your philosophers and by my rabbis, uh, your philosophers directly, my rabbis indirectly. But, you know, these were questions that um, intelligent people thought about, even, even though they did, unfortunately, their, their, um, the philosophical solutions were not applied. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for creating these narratives, though. They were extremely pleasant and fascinating to read and really brought this Jewish history alive to me. So I very much appreciated that. And it's probably the part I mostly enjoyed writing and which also brings us properly to a question that our colleagues may ask us, how authentic would be the stories that we create for these children? In other words, if we, if we were into magic, if we were into alternative reality, if we had the opportunity to resurrect for half an hour those three children that I create, well, Jesus, son of Babata, obviously was a real child, but the two others whom I more or less created, if we had opportunity to bring them to life for half an hour and put a microphone and ask them question or do a podcast with them, would I say, yes, you really grasped what it meant to be a child? Or would I say, come on, ladies, you're really hallucinating. So <laughs> this is, this is, <laughs> One answer to that we found with the help of a remarkable artist um, who actually 
they just did. In other words, she recreated her childhood, but she was not a child anymore. She was like 23, 24 years old. So she was not that far from childhood, but she was not actually a child. And what we found so remarkable that she obviously recreated her childhood on the basis of information that she learned much later in life. This uh, information was basically a series of family tragedies. And in her case, these family tragedies became objects of paintings. So, so you know, let's, let's face it, every family can sustain a tragedy. Every family can, uh, uh, tragedies can befell so many families. And, and it is heartbreaking. So how, what do we do with them? And in the case of this particular artist, she decided, in a sense, to cleanse it by drawing it, by making a picture of what she was told throughout her life about especially scenes of childhood that she wasn't there. So for example, the, the first picture is the picture of the suicide of her aunt that happened before she was born. So obviously there was no way she was there, but she heard much later in life that she bears the name of the aunt who committed suicide before she was born. And when she was about eight years old, her mother committed suicide. And of course she was told that her mother goes to heaven, but many years later, she learned that no, no, the other did not die. Yeah, and let us share the, the picture. So this is a picture not drawn by a child. The artist is probably about, as I said, 24, 25, and her name is Charlotte Salomon. Mm -hmm. and, um, and this is the way she recreates her childhood and the memories of her mom saying, you know, I'm going to heaven. But even when I'm in heaven, I will make sure to write letters to you so that you will know what it's all about. And you can see that for Charlotte, this is Charlotte and her mother, and that's mother going to heaven all, and then mother reaching heaven with all, with wonderful God and all the other relatives and there who, uh, who basically opened her arms and so glad to see her. And then you see, she promised, she made a promise, writing letters and sending them to her daughter. See, and she didn't forget a promise. But beyond that story, which looks so sweet and so tranquil, there's the tragedy that her mother committed suicide when Charlotte was eight years old. So the question is how authentic is and are the childhoods that we create, that we describe for the benefit of our readers, when we do that, when we are no longer children ourselves. So how authentic are our memories, if you want, and to what extent we recreate them as we understand the childhood to be. Marlene, your reflections? Well, I would first love to say about this image that I think uh, this is also typical of Charlotte Salomon's style of painting that she merges many different images into one. So in this uh, beautiful painting, we have the image of uh, Francisca, the mother, being in bed with, uh, with her daughter, Charlotte, talking to her about her yearning to die. And then there is this ima ima imagination of the daughter uh, coming in, like filling in the... Uh, other parts, like, okay, she's imagining how her mother ascends to heaven, descends to bring her the letters she has promised. And there are like many different images merged into one, which somehow I think 
also reflects the way we remember our childhood that we don't really remember these isolated images or events, but we bring many different memories and feelings and narratives uh, together. Uh, as uh, when we remember something, we always kind of recreate something of, of the past. And I think here, um, there is a text that goes together with this. Unfortunately, I don't have the text uh, with me right now, but uh, the text basically reflects the child's understanding of this scene, like not the adult understanding that, oh, my mother committed suicide, but the child thinking uh, and kind of accepting it at face value that, okay, my mom will go to heaven, but that's okay because she will be an angel. She will come back. She will still be with me. It's a child who doesn't have the concept of death or understand the finality of death yet. And that, I think, for me was uh, so so tragic and so touching in uh, viewing this image that it has still this quality of the child's way of accepting the stories and the narratives as the parents tell them as they are and not yet kind of understanding the consequences. Exactly. Uh, and, and yeah, I think she also captures something of the child's way of looking at the world, I think. Yes, and that's in a sense what I missed so much. If we go back for a minute to Benjamin and the funerary monument on which he appeared, it's all these scenes with what did his mother tell him when he was a child? What did his father tell him when he was a child? What was, the, what was family life like? And that's what we miss so much on funerary monuments, which are the most widespread testimony for children because it's the final moment. And we miss the stories behind that. And what Charlotte does, which is truly amazing, is really recreating, recreating all these moments that, are, that actually are there in reality, but they are not congealed on one funerary monument. So she takes all these moments that you mentioned, all these disparate souvenirs and create a story out of them, which is really, in a sense, the genius of her work of collecting all these souvenirs as they, in a sense, were from her point of view as a child and not in the interpretation of adults who knew very well that her mother actually committed suicide. But, it, but in, and instead they told her stories about her you know, going to heaven, which really, really reinforced what her mother told her as well. So there is the, the, uh, the stories that as adults tell children and the stories that children may tell themselves, which may not be the same. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think um, as a part of that genius, uh, of Charlotte's work is also something that like, she, she has created this method of recreating her childhood through the painting and the narrative and making it into a huge monumental art project. But now today, her methodology is actually backed up by science. Now, interpersonal neuropsychology is not my personal field of research, and I cannot talk about it as an expert of conducting that research, but I'm really fascinated by it, and I have been reading a lot of its results, right? And I, uh, I'm here thinking about what could be called temporal or narrative integration, which in a nutshell would 
mean that we can have the most difficult memories from our childhood as a part of our story. Uh, and if those memories are not integrated into our story of who we are, they can be very haunting and very damaging and very painful indeed. But on the other hand, we can also build a coherent narrative that makes sense of even the most painful and horrible memories. And this is kind of what I have been reading through the interpersonal neuropsychology and particularly the work of Daniel Siegel, uh, how this integrating or integrative narrative can really help us to uh, bear also those tragedies from our childhood and uh, make them a part of our sense of our self in a meaningful way. And I think somehow Charlotte just naturally found a way of doing this that she, uh, you know, learning that so many female members of her family had committed suicide, her aunt, her mother, she witnessed her grandmother throw herself out of the window. So instead of thinking like, this is also my fate, this runs in the family, this is what happens to us women of this family, she finds an alternative route of finding another distance and perspective on these events and um, creating a narrative of them, which is extremely sad and tragic. I was crying so much when I was reading and looking. And, and looking we should this. But then it, it's really beautiful too. I mean, yeah. it is also artistically very, very appealing and inspiring. Yeah, and you mentioned that there's a text. So in fact, there are about 1,000... 300 images that describe um, Charlotte's uh, essentially early life. It's called uh, Leben oder Theater, Life or Theater. So already the title tells you that she kind of envisaged her life as an unrolling drama, if you want. And then we shouldn't forget that it was, there was music as well. So each, each painting should really be um, seen in the context of a text and music that we're really part of it. And it's so true that in life, we use our eyes, we use our ears, and we use our mouth. And not separately, but really all together. And, and that's also the sense that I was trying to recreate when I, told, when I recreated the children or when I created the narratives for these children. But because I'm no good in drawing, unfortunately, I couldn't draw them. And since, unfortunately, Charlotte was killed when she was very young at the age of 26, I couldn't ask her to help. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, rest assured that I would have asked her to help. Mm -hmm. um, but I cannot remedy history. I can only tell history and share history with those who would be interested. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to end with uh, Charlotte Salomon's uh, drawing um, because basically we thought, as, as Marlene mentioned, that um, when we try to understand children and childhood in antiquity and in modernity, there are certain um, very interesting and striking, not necessarily strict similarities, but certainly um, similarities that make us um, understand better, if you want, what the ancients had to say about children and childhood in, in general. But also we wanted to highlight what's missing, what we have from the sources and also what's missing. And the question is, do we leave those big gaps or do we actually fill them with a little bit of 
imagination or recreation. Uh, Malin? Absolutely. Is it your last words? <laughs> well, as you know, Hagit, I could spend hours and hours absorbing conversation with you. So I <laughs> truly appreciate every opportunity I get to talk to you and learn from you. Um, I just want to thank you for this conversation, which was very inspiring and uh, eye-opening for me. And thank you for sharing your wisdom and and your sources and your narratives with me and all of our listeners and and viewers and i really look forward to our next conversation and thank you very much and i'm very grateful for this spark of inspiration that when uh, professor patrick ryan said that i need to do it with a colleague i thought first i panicked and i thought where am I going to find a colleague who, with whom I can really not only work, but enjoy doing that, truly enjoy. And then somehow, literally, at a moment of divine inspiration, the name came to me, Malin. <laughs> and then I remember contacting you and I think, what will she say? And I was just so happy to hear that you said, yes, I'm delighted to do this podcast. And I just hope uh, viewers, listeners that I hope, we hope that you enjoy this as much as we enjoyed creating that. Yeah, absolutely. A lot more to say, but if you have any questions, any comments, we are always happy to hear from anyone and everyone. And thank you. Yes, thank you for my part. And thank you so much, Hagit, for inviting me. It was a pleasure and an honor. And absolutely right. likewise, very much. Right. So now we will click the end <laughs> it is the <laughs> end but we look forward to hearing from you any questions comments or concerns please do not hesitate to contact us okay thank you Hagit and you, until Mali. next time yes bye 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 thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts you can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online sh cy.org